Section 7 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on books, men, and things by William Hazlitt. Section 7. On Application to Study. No one is idle who can do anything. It is conscious inability, or the sense of repeated failure, that prevents us from undertaking, or deters us from the prosecution of any work. Wilson, the painter, might be mentioned as an exception to this rule, for he was said to be an indolent man. After bestowing a few touches on a picture, he grew tired, and said to any friend who called in, Now let us go somewhere. But the fact is that Wilson could not finish his pictures minutely, and that those few masterly touches, carelessly thrown in of a morning, were all that he could do. The rest would have been labour lost. Morland has been referred to as another man of genius, who can only be brought to work by fits and snatches. But his landscapes and figures, whatever degree of merit they might possess, were mere hasty sketches, and he could produce all that he was capable of in the first half-hour, as well as in twenty years. Why bestow additional pains without additional effect? What he did was from the impulse of the moment, from the lively impression of some coarse but striking object, and with that impulse his efforts ceased, as they justly ought. There is no use in labouring in vita minerva, nor any difficulty in it, when the muse is not averse. The labour we delight in physics pain. Denner finished his unmeaning portraits with a microscope, and without being ever weary of his fruitless task, for the essence of his genius was industry. Sir Joshua Reynolds, courted by the graces and by fortune, was hardly ever out of his painting-room, and lamented a few days at any time spent at a friend's house or at a nobleman's seat in the country, as so much time lost. That darkly illuminated room, to him a kingdom was. His pencil was the sceptre that he wielded, and the throne on which his sitters were placed, a throne for fame. Here he felt indeed at home. Here the current of his ideas flowed full and strong. Here he felt most self-possession, most command over others, and the sense of power urged him on to his delightful task, with a sort of vernal cheerfulness and vigour, even in the decline of life. The feeling of weakness and incapacity would have made his hand soon falter, would have rebutted him from his object, or had the canvas mocked and been insensible to his toil, instead of gradually turning to a lucid mirror in which nature saw all her reflected features, he would, like so many others, have thrown down his pencil in despair, or proceeded reluctantly. Without spirit, 
and without success. Claude Lorraine, in like manner, spent whole mornings on the banks of the Tiber, or in his study, eliciting beauty after beauty, adding touch to touch, getting nearer and nearer to perfection, luxuriating in endless felicity, not merely giving the salient points, but filling up the whole intermediate space with continuous grace and beauty. What further motive was necessary to induce him to persevere? But the bounty of his fate? What greater pleasure could he seek for than that of seeing the perfect image of his mind reflected in the work of his hand? But as is the pleasure and the confidence produced by consummate skill, so is the pain and the desponding effect of total failure. When for the fair face of nature we only see an unsightly blot issuing from our best endeavours, then the nerves slacken, the tears fill the eyes, and the painter turns away from his art as the lover from a mistress that scorns him. Alas! How many such have, as the poet says, begun in gladness, whereof has come in the end despondency and madness. Not for want of will to proceed, oh no, but for lack of power. Hence it is that those often do best, up to a certain point of commonplace success, who have least knowledge and least ambition to excel. Their taste keeps pace with their capacity, and they are not deterred by insurmountable difficulties, of which they have no idea. I have known artists, for instance, of considerable merit, and a certain native rough strength and resolution of mind, who have been active and enterprising in their profession, but who never seem to think of any works but those which they had in hand. They never spoke of a picture, or appeared to have seen one. To them Titian, Raphael, Rubens, Rembrandt, Correggio, were as if they had never been. No tones, mellowed by time to soft perfection, lured them to their luckless doom. No divine forms baffled their vain embrace. No sound of immortality rang in their ears, or drew off their attention from the calls of creditors, or of hunger. They walked through collections of the finest works, like the children in the fiery furnace, untouched, unapproached. With these true terrae filii, the art seemed to begin and end. They thought only of the subject of their next production, the size of their next canvas, the grouping, the getting of the figures in, and conducted their work to its conclusion, with as little distraction of mind, and as few misgivings, as a stage-coachman conducts a stage, or a carrier delivers a bale of goods, according to its destination. Such persons, if they do not rise above, at least seldom sink below themselves, they do not soar to the highest heaven of invention, nor penetrate the inmost recesses of the heart. But they succeed in all that they attempt, or are capable of, as men of business and industry in their calling. For them the veil of the temple of art is not rent asunder, and it is well, one glimpse of the sanctuary, of the holy of the holies, might palsy their hands and dim their sight for ever after. I think there are two mistakes common enough on this subject, viz. that men of genius, or of first-rate capacity, do little except by intermittent fits or per saltum, 
and that they do that little in a slight and slovenly manner. There may be instances of this, but they are not the highest, and they are the exceptions, not the rule. On the contrary, the greatest artists have in general been the most prolific or the most elaborate, as the best writers have been frequently the most voluminous as well as indefatigable. We have a great living instance among writers that the quality of a man's productions is not to be estimated in the inverse ratio of their quantity, I mean in the author of Waverley, the fecundity of whose pen is no less admirable than its felicity. Shakespeare is another instance of the same prodigality of genius, his materials being endlessly poured forth with no niggard or fastidious hand, and the mastery of the execution being, in many respects at least, equal to the boldness of the design. As one example among others, that I might cite, of the attention which he gave to his subject, it is sufficient to observe that there is scarcely a word in any of his more striking passages that can be altered for the better. If any person, for instance, is trying to recollect a favourite line, and cannot hit upon some particular expression, it is in vain to think of substituting any other so good. That in the original text is not merely the best, but it seems the only right one. I will stop to illustrate this point a little. I was at a loss the other day for the line in Henry V, nice customs curtsy to great kings. I could not recollect the word nice. I tried a number of others, such as old, grave, etc. They would none of them do, but seemed all heavy, lumbering, or from the purpose. The word nice, on the contrary, appeared to drop into its place and be ready to assist in paying the reverence required. Again, a jest's prosperity lies in the ear of him that hears it. I thought in quoting from memory of a jest's success, a jest's renown, etc. I then turned to the volume, and there found the very word that of all others expressed the idea. Had Shakespeare searched through the four quarters of the globe, he could not have lighted on another to convey so exactly what he meant, a casual, hollow, sounding success. I could multiply such examples, but that I am sure the reader will easily supply them himself. And they show sufficiently that Shakespeare was not, as he is often represented, a loose or clumsy writer. The bold, happy texture of his style, in which every word is prominent, and yet cannot be torn from its place without violence, any more than a limb from the body, is, one should think, the result either of vigilant painstaking, or of unerring intuitive perception, and not the mark of crude conceptions, and the random blindfold blows of ignorance. There cannot be a greater contradiction to the common prejudice that genius is naturally a truant and a vagabond, than the astonishing, and on this hypothesis, unaccountable number of chefs d'oeuvre left behind them by the old masters. The stream of their invention supplies the taste of successive generations like a river. They furnish a hundred galleries, and preclude competition, not more by the excellence than by the number of their performances. Take Raphael and Rubens alone. There are works of theirs in single collections enough to occupy a long and laborious life, and yet their works are spread through all the collections of Europe. They seem to have cost them no more labour than if they had drawn in their breath and puffed it forth again. But we know that they made drawings, studies, sketches, of all the principal of these, 
with the care and caution of the merest tyros in the art and they remain equal proofs of their capacity and diligence the cartoons of raphael alone might have employed many years and made a life of illustrious labour though they look as if they had been struck off at a blow and are not a tenth part of what he produced in his short but bright career titian and michelangelo lived longer but they worked as hard and did as well shall we bring in competition with examples like these some trashy caricaturist or idle dauber who has no sense of the infinite resources of nature or art nor consequently any power to employ himself upon them for any length of time or to any purpose to prove that genius and regular industry are incompatible qualities in my opinion the very superiority of the works of the great painters instead of being a bar to accounts for their multiplicity power is pleasure and the pleasure sweetens pain a fine poet thus describes the effect of the sight of nature on his mind the sounding cataract haunted me like a passion the tall rock the mountain and the deep and gloomy wood their colours and their forms were then to me an appetite a feeling and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied or any interest unborrowed from the eye so the forms of nature or the human form divine stood before the great artists of old nor required any other stimulus to lead the eye to survey or the hand to embody them than the pleasure derived from the inspiration of the subject and propulsive force of the mimic creation the grandeur of their works was an argument with them not to stop short but to proceed they could have no higher excitement or satisfaction than in the exercise of their art and endless generation of truth and beauty success prompts to exertion and habit facilitates success it is idle to suppose we can exhaust nature and the more we employ our own faculties the more we strengthen them and enrich our stores of observation and invention the more we do the more we can do not indeed if we get our ideas out of our own heads that stock is soon exhausted and we recur to tiresome vapid imitations of ourselves but this is the difference between real and mock talent between genius and affectation nature is not limited nor does it become effete like our conceit and vanity the closer we examine it the more it refines upon us it expands as we enlarge and shift our view it grows with our growth and strengthens with our strength the subjects are endless and our capacity is invigorated as it is called out by occasion and necessity he who does nothing renders himself incapable of doing anything but while we are executing any work we are preparing and qualifying ourselves to undertake another the principles are the same in all nature and we understand them better as we verify them by experience and practice it is not as if there were a given number of subjects to work upon or a set of innate or preconceived ideas in our minds which we encroached upon with every new design the subjects as i said before are endless and we acquire ideas by imparting them our expenditure of intellectual wealth makes us rich we can only be liberal as we have previously accumulated the means by lying idle as by standing still we are confined to the same trite narrow round of topics by continuing our efforts 
as by moving forwards in a road we extend our views and discover continually new tracts of country genius like humanity rusts for want of use habit also gives promptness and the soul of dispatch is decision one man may write a book or paint a picture while another is deliberating about the plan or the title page the great painters were able to do so much because they knew exactly what they meant to do and how to set about it they were thoroughbred workmen and were not learning their art while they were exercising it one can do a great deal in a short time if one only knows how thus an author may become very voluminous who only employs an hour or two in a day in study if he has once obtained by habit and reflection a use of his pen with plenty of materials to work upon the pages vanish before him the time lost is in beginning or in stopping after we have begun if we only go forward with spirit and confidence we shall soon arrive at the end of our journey a practised writer ought never to hesitate for a sentence from the moment he sets pen to paper or think about the course he is to take he must trust to his previous knowledge of the subject and to his immediate impulses and he will get to the close of his task without accidents or loss of time i can easily understand how the old divines and controversialists produced their folios i could write folios myself if i rose early and sat up late at this kind of occupation but i confess i should soon be tired of it besides wearying the reader in one sense art is long and life is short in another sense this aphorism is not true the best of us are idle half our time it is wonderful how much is done in a short space provided we set about it properly and give our minds wholly to it let any one devote himself to any art or science ever so strenuously and he will still have leisure to make considerable progress in half a dozen other acquirements leonardo da vinci was a mathematician a musician a poet and an anatomist besides being one of the greatest painters of his age the prince of painters was a courtier a lover and fond of dress and company michelangelo was a prodigy of versatility of talent a writer of sonnets which wordsworth has thought worth translating and the admirer of dante salvator was a lutenist and a satirist titian was an elegant letter-writer and a finished gentleman sir joshua reynolds discourses are polished and classical even than any of his pictures let a man do all he can in any one branch of study he must either exhaust himself and doze over it or vary his pursuit or else lie idle all our real labour lies in a nutshell the mind makes at some period or other one herculean effort and the rest is mechanical we have to climb a steep and narrow precipice at first but after that the way is broad and easy where we may drive several accomplishments abreast men should have one principal pursuit which may be both agreeably and advantageously diversified with other lighter ones as the subordinate parts of a picture may be managed so as to give effect to the centre group it has been observed by a sensible man that the having a regular occupation or professional duties to attend to is no excuse for putting forth an inelegant or inaccurate work for habit of industry braces and strengthens the mind and enables it to wield its energies with additional ease and steadier purpose were i allowed to instance in myself if what i write at present is worth nothing at least it cost me nothing but it cost me a great deal twenty years ago i have added little to my stock since then and taken little from it 
I unfold the book and volume of the brain, and transcribe the characters I see there, as mechanically as any one might copy the letters in a sampler. I do not say they came there mechanically. I transfer them to the paper mechanically. After eight or ten years' hard study, an author, at least, may go to sleep. I do not conceive rapidity of execution necessarily implies slovenliness or crudeness. On the contrary, I believe it is often productive both of sharpness and freedom. The eagerness of composition strikes out sparkles of fancy, and runs the thoughts more naturally and closely into one another. There may be less formal method, but there is more life and spirit and truth. In the play and agitation of the mind it runs over, and we dally with the subject as the glass-blower rapidly shapes the vitreous fluid. A number of new thoughts rise up spontaneously, and they come in the proper places, because they arise from the occasion. They are also sure to partake of the warmth and vividness of that ebullition of mind from which they spring. Spiritus precipitandus est. In these sort of voluntaries in composition, the thoughts are worked up to a state of projection. The grasp of the subject, the presence of mind, the flow of expression, must be something akin to extempore speaking, or perhaps such bold but finished draughts may be compared to fresco paintings, which imply a life of study, and great previous preparation, but of which the execution is momentary and irrevocable. I will add a single remark on a point that has been much disputed. Mr. Cobbett lays it down that the first word that occurs is always the best. I would venture to differ from so great an authority. Mr. Cobbett himself indeed writes as easily and as well as he talks, but he perhaps is hardly a rule for others without his practice and without his ability. In the hurry of composition three or four words may present themselves, one on the back of the other, and the last may be the best and right one. I grant thus much, that it is in vain to seek for the word we want, or endeavour to get it at second hand, or as a paraphrase on some other word. It must come of itself, or arise out of an immediate impression or lively intuition of the subject. That is, the proper word must be suggested immediately by the thoughts, but it need not be presented as soon as called for. It is the same in trying to recollect the names of places, persons, etc. We cannot force our memory. They must come of themselves by natural association, as it were, but they may occur to us when we least think of it, owing to some casual circumstance, or link of connection, and long after we have given up the search. Proper expressions rise to the surface from the heat and fermentation of the mind, like bubbles on an agitated stream. It is this which produces a clear and sparkling style. In painting, great execution supplies the place of high finishing. A few vigorous touches, properly and rapidly disposed, will often give more of the appearance and texture even of natural objects than the most heavy and laborious details. But this masterly style of execution is very different from coarse daubing. I do not think, however, that the pains or polish an artist bestows upon his works necessarily interferes with their number. He only grows more enamoured of his task, proportionately patient, indefatigable, and devotes more of the day to study. The time we lose is not in overdoing what we are about, but in doing nothing. Rubens had great facility of execution, and seldom went into the details. 
yet raphael whose oil pictures were exact and laboured achieved according to the length of time he lived very nearly as much as he in filling up the parts of his pictures and giving them the last perfection they were capable of he filled up his leisure hours which otherwise would have lain idle on his hands i have sometimes accounted for the slow progress of certain artists from the unfinished state in which they have left their works at last these were evidently done by fits and throws there was no appearance of continuous labour one figure had been thrown in at a venture and then another and in the intervals between these convulsive and random efforts more time had been wasted than could have been spent in working up each individual figure on the sure principles of art and by a careful inspection of nature to the utmost point of practicable perfection some persons are afraid of their own works and having made one or two successful efforts attempt nothing ever after they stand still midway in the road to fame from being startled at the shadow of their own reputation this is a needless alarm if what they have already done possesses real power this will increase with exercise if it has not this power it is not sufficient to ensure them lasting fame such delicate pretenders tremble on the brink of ideal perfection like dewdrops on the edge of flowers and are fascinated like so many narcissuses with the image of themselves reflected from the public admiration it is seldom indeed that this cautious repose will answer its end while seeking to sustain our reputation at the height we are forgotten shakespeare gave different advice and himself acted upon it perseverance dear my lord keeps honour bright to have done is to hang quite out of fashion like a rusty mail in monumental mockery take the instant way for honour travels in a strait so narrow where one but goes abreast keep then the path for emulation hath a thousand sons that one by one pursue if you give way or hedge aside from the direct forthright like to an entered tide they all rush by and leave you hindmost or like a gallant horse fallen in first rank lie there for pavement to the abject rear o'errun and trampled on then what they do in present though less than yours in past must o'ertop yours for time is like a fashionable host that slightly shakes his parting guest by the hand and with his arms outstretched as he would fly grasps in the comer welcome ever smiles and farewell goes out sighing oh let not virtue seek remuneration for the thing it was for beauty wit high birth vigour of bone desert in service love friendship charity are subjects all to envious and calumniating time one touch of nature makes the whole world kin that all with one consent praise new-born gods though they are made and moulded of things past and give to dust that is a little guilt more lord than guilt o'er dusted the present eye praises the present object i cannot very well conceive how it is that some writers even of taste and genius spend whole years in mere corrections for the press as it were in polishing a line or adjusting a comma they take long to consider exactly as there is nothing worth the trouble of a moment's thought and the more they deliberate the further they are from deciding for their fastidiousness increases with the indulgence of it nor is there any real ground for preference they are in the situation of ned softly in the tatler who was a whole morning debating whether a line of poetical epistles should run you sing your song with so much art or your song you sing with so much art these are points 
that it is impossible ever to come to a determination about and it is only a proof of a little mind ever to have entertained the question at all there is a class of persons whose minds seem to move in an element of littleness or rather that are entangled in trifling difficulties and incapable of extricating themselves from them there was a remarkable instance of this improgressive ineffectual restless activity of temper in a late celebrated and very ingenious landscape painter never ending still beginning his mind seemed entirely made up of points and fractions nor could he by any means arrive at a conclusion or a valuable whole he made it his boast that he never sat with his hands before him and yet he never did anything his powers and his time were frittered away in an importunate uneasy fidgety attention to little things the first picture he ever painted when a mere boy was a copy of his father's house and he began it by counting the number of bricks in the front upwards and lengthways and then made a scaler of them on his canvas this literal style and mode of study stuck to him to the last he was put under wilson whose example if any could might have cured him of this pettiness of conception but nature prevailed as it almost always does to take pains to no purpose seemed to be his motto and the delight of his life he left when he died not long ago heaps of canvases with elaborately finished pencil outlines on them and with perhaps a little dead colouring added here and there in this state they were thrown aside as if he grew tired of his occupation the instant it gave a promise of turning to account and his whole object in the pursuit of art was to erect scaffoldings the same intense interest in the most frivolous things extended to the common concerns of life to the arranging of his letters the labelling of his books and the inventory of his wardrobe yet he was a man of sense who saw the folly and the waste of time in all this and could warn others against it the perceiving our own weaknesses enables us to give others excellent advice but it does not teach us to reform them ourselves physician heal thyself is the hardest lesson to follow nobody knew better than our artist that repose is necessary to great efforts and that he who is never idle labours in vain another error is to spend one's life in procrastination and preparations for the future persons of this turn of mind stop at the threshold of art and accumulate the means of improvement till they obstruct their progress to the end they are always putting off the evil day and excuse themselves for doing nothing by commencing some new and indispensable course of study their projects are magnificent but remote and require years to complete or to put them in execution fame is seen in the horizon and flies before them like the recreant boastful knight in spencer they turn their backs on their competitors to make a great career but never return to the charge they make themselves masters of anatomy of drawing of perspective they collect prints casts medallions make studies of heads of hands of the bones the muscles copy pictures visit italy greece and return as they went they fulfil the proverb when you are at rome you must do as those at rome do this circuitous erratic pursuit of art can come to no good it is only an apology for idleness and vanity foreign travel especially makes men pedants not artists what we seek we must find at home or nowhere the way to do great things is to set about something 
and he who cannot find resources in himself or in his own painting-room will perform the grand tour or go through the circle of arts and sciences and end just where he began the same remarks that have been here urged with respect to an application to the study of art will in a great measure though not in every particular apply to an attention to business i mean that exertion will generally follow success and opportunity in the one as it does confidence and talent in the other give a man a motive to work and he will work a lawyer who is regularly feed seldom neglects to look over his briefs the more business the more industry the stress laid upon early rising is preposterous if we have anything to do when we get up we shall not lie in bed to a certainty thompson the poet was found late in bed by dr burney and asked why he had not risen earlier the scotchman wisely answered i had no motive young man what indeed had he to do after writing the seasons but to dream out the rest of his existence unless it were to write the castle of indolence end of section seven